Before They Were Beatles, Episode 6, The Day That Paul Met John. This is the story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It's a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Before I start this episode, I need to add a quick explanation about the way we've presented the music clips to date. At the beginning of this project, we thought it might be a fun idea to present the music in some approximation of the way the people in the story may have heard it themselves in the late 1950s, i.e. through tinny radios and low-quality record players. So we put the tracks through a two-stage filter to get the right effect. However, for this episode, we wanted to include a sound clip from a tape recording of a performance that was actually captured in 1957. Even at its best, it's low quality and barely audible, but it's very important to the story we are telling. Putting that through the filter would make it completely inaudible. As it probably won't be the only time we need to present contemporary audio clips going forward, we have decided that from this episode on, we will present the audio and music clips in the original quality that we find them. Thanks for listening, and now on with the story. 6th of July, 1957. Part 1. The 6th of July, 1957, is arguably the most important date in the early story of the Beatles. This day, above all others, has probably been discussed and investigated to a greater depth than anything else. For this was the day that John Lennon met Paul McCartney. Although according to at least one researcher, John and Paul had already met outside of a local chippy, a fish and chip shop, in the late spring of 1957. They allegedly greeted each other as mutual friends of Ivan Fawn, but didn't stop to have a conversation. However, this incident is not backed up by any other account, nor any published interviews. But in a TV interview on The Parkinson's Show in December 1999, Paul did acknowledge the fact that he already knew who John was prior to the fateful day they were introduced. Quote, I'd seen John around on the local buses. He was a Ted, i.e. Teddy boy, and I thought he looked cool, but didn't speak to him until Ivy, Ivan Vaughan, introduced us. The big event in Walton each summer was a garden fete and a Rose Queen procession organised by St Peter's Parish Church. This year the fete was planned for July the 6th, 1957, and it made a break from tradition in that for the first time the teenagers of the parish were to be catered for. Quote, the Lennon boy had been asked to bring his group, the quarrymen, to take part in the procession and to perform afterwards at the fete. The invitation had come as a direct result of Pete Shotton's mother's suggestion to the Reverend Price Jones the previous month and as we discussed in the last podcast. Early on the Saturday afternoon, around 1pm according to Len Gary's account, the quarrymen climbed aboard a gaily decked coal merchant's wagon driven by 17-year-old Doug Chadwick. It had been decided that their float should bring up the rear of the procession to ally any clash of rhythms with the band of the Cheshire Yeomanry who were leading the parade. In between came the floats of the local organisations and traders, the centrebeasts being the float carrying the throne of the newly crowned 13-year-old Rose Queen, a Miss Sally Wright. Then Gary recalls, apparently we were booked to perform on five occasions that day, firstly on the float and then twice in the afternoon in the church field and then twice in the church hall that evening. Songs planned for the back of the wagon performance included Worried Man Blues, Maggie May, Railroad Bill and Midnight Special. Part 2. Church Road has a gradient of about 1 in 4 and given their precarious position the quarryman decided not to start playing until they'd reached an even gradient. As they reached level ground, John launched into his rendition of Midnight Special. Nothing in my tank, 
The rest of the set followed as the procession wound its way down the almost equally steep King's Drive, past the home of quarryman Rod Davis at number 129, and then along Hunts Cross Avenue. But halfway around, the group became worried about losing their balance and sat down. John sat on the edge of the wagon with his legs swung over the side as he continued to play, and the procession arrived back at the church around 2.50. The quarrymen stored their instruments in the scout hut and joined the festivities as the Rose Queen was officially crowned and the fate opened. Having amused themselves at the various sideshows, the boys returned to the scout hut at 4pm as the brass band was finishing up its performance, and the quarrymen set up their instruments on the small, semi-permanent platform constructed from artificial composite walling stones. As can be seen in the famous photograph taken that day by fellow quarry bank pupil Jeff Rind, John was at the microphone centre stage and right at the front. Len Gary was placed on his left and Eric Griffiths on his right. Rod Davis, Colin Hanton and Pete Shotton were all arranged behind John. Rather than his usual introductory quips, John opened the set by launching straight into All Shook Up and Blue Suede Shoes. Len Gary remarks that there was a noticeable change in Lennon's level of enthusiasm as he rasped these songs, in comparison to the way he'd performed the standard skiffle numbers earlier in the day. The rock and roll numbers were then followed by a rendition of Maggie May, a song about a Liverpool prostitute cheekily dedicated by John to Pricey, i.e. the Vicar of St. Peter's, the Reverend Price Jones. During the afternoon session, John's aunt and guardian Mimi Smith was taking refreshments in the tea tent when the kids started rushing out of the tent towards the bandstand. Looking out to see what was happening, Mimi was horrified to see John on stage. John saw me standing there. He just started making up words about me in the song he was singing, Mimi is quoted as saying. In fact, John's talent for improvisation was not limited to lyrics about his aunt. The quarrymen also played their usual arrangement of the Dell Vikings hit Come Go With Me, 
On the original, the lead sings Love, lovely me, Love Me Darling, Come and Go With Me, Please Don't Send Me Way Beyond the Sea. Unable to make the last phrase, John had slotted in what he thought was a typical American word, and the result was Come, Come, Come Go With Me down to the penitentiary. The afternoon session wound up with John taking the lead on That'll Be The Day. The quarrymen had brought a large influx of teenagers into Walton to see the parade. At the back of the crowd during the afternoon performance had stood John's friend and neighbour Ivan Vaughan alongside his school friend Paul McCartney. Ivan, Paul's classmate at the Institute, had asked him over to see a band he sometimes played in, the Quarrymen, and to meet its leader, a great fellow by the name of John Lennon. It appears that Paul McCartney wasn't initially impressed with John's guitar playing. He was, however, impressed by John's improvisation of slotting in words from blues songs like Penitentiary when he didn't know the correct lyrics. Following a brief performance by the local police dog, the quarrymen returned to the outdoor stage at 5.30 and, according to Len Gary, quote, switched into automatic pilot with hardly any enthusiasm. We dutifully played and sang our way through our skiffle repertoire, and by 6.20, we'd had enough. According to Gary, Paul McCartney missed this second performance as he cycled back to 24th Lynn Road to collect his guitar, as Paul would have needed his guitar string for a left-handed player in it in order to show off any level of proficiency to the group. However, this contradicts events as later recalled by Paul and confirmed by other members of the Quarrymen that he played left-handed on a right-handed guitar, probably borrowed from Eric Griffiths, playing the chords upside down. At around 6.45, the group moved over to the back of the church hall at the opposite end from the stage where they were due to perform at 8.45 and 10pm following the George Edwards Band. Part 4 At around 7pm, Paul McCartney entered the hall with Ivan Vaughan. Ivan introduced him to the rest of the group, leaving John till last. John's response on being introduced to Paul was a simple, Hi. Nothing more. John was busy tuning his guitar, still using banjo chords, and practically ignored Paul until McCartney offered to give him a hand tuning his guitar the correct way. John responded to Paul's low-key offer to help, and as Paul retuned John's guitar to the correct chords, the conversation drifted to favourite artists. Paul's mention of Elvis, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent and Little Richard further prompted Lennon's interest. Pete Shotton recalls that Paul's ability to retune the guitars also impressed John, though he didn't show it at the time. At this point, neither John nor Eric Griffiths had actually learned how to tune their instruments. With some encouragement from Ivan, Paul launched into his party piece Little Richard impersonation and sang along Tall Sally. Asked by John if he knew anything else, Paul admitted to knowing all the words to Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock and proceeded to demonstrate by playing the whole song. machine when it comes to rocking she's a queen but you dance on a saturday night all alone i can hold her tight she lives on the 20th floor uptown the elevator's broken down but i walk on two flight three by four five six seven flight eight flight more i'm on 12 i'm starting to sack 15 before i'm ready to drag i get to the top i'm too tired to rock
Something I've wondered about is the fact that despite it now being recognized as a classic rock tune, at this point in time, 20 Flight Rock was an obscure track. It's probable that Paul and John first encountered it during Cochrane's cameo performance in the 1956 movie The Girl Can't Help It. However, it was never released as a single in the UK or the US. In fact, it was ignored by Cochrane's record company for years. It didn't get much, if any, radio play, and Cochrane didn't have his first UK hit until November 1958. So why would Paul choose this song to learn, and where would he hear it often enough to learn the lyrics? This either serves as a perfect example of how far ahead of the times musically and in terms of awareness of US music Paul and John were, or it may be an indication of how one person's faulty memory through repeated tellings gets accepted as the norm and becomes adopted as the truth and retold even by those involved. In fact, neither Colin or, nor Rod of the Quarrymen has any clear recollection of Paul's momentous meeting with John, nor of hearing anyone, let alone Paul, play 20 Flight Rock that evening. In fact, Eric recalls Paul's meeting with John, but says the first time he heard Paul play the Eddie Cochran song was much later at Paul's house. Following his performance, Paul sat down with a piece of paper and pencil and drew out some bar chords for John. What exactly Paul wrote for John is disputed and no surviving record exists. Some accounts suggest that Paul wrote lyrics to 20 Flight Rock, others that it was Bebop Alula, and it's also suggested that Paul told John that he was singing the wrong lyrics to come go with me and wrote out a correct set of lyrics for John to learn. Of all the possible scenarios, this latter one seems the most likely one to me. Paul's recollection of this momentous occasion is somewhat briefer than other, ca- other accounts. He recalled, quote, this beery old man getting nearer and nearer and breathing down my neck as I was playing. Turned out it was John. I showed him a few more chords that he didn't know, then I left. I felt I'd make, made a good impression. Paul's remark about John's beery breath has been taken by many researchers to indicate that John was drunk that day, but quarryman Len Gary and Pete Shotton both disagree. Pete Shotton recalls, quote, He didn't have enough money to get drunk, even if we did like the stuff. Yes, we were drunk at the Rosebury Street celebrations, but I don't remember John being drunk on the day of the fate. Part 5. The Quarrymen returned to the stage at 8.45, refreshed. Len Gary noticed that, quote, meeting Paul had whetted John's appetite. He seemed to have a new sparkle, as though he'd had an injection of renewed optimism and enthusiasm. The Quarrymen completed 14 songs split between the two sessions that evening. The first session included All Shook Up, Bebop Alula, Blue Suede Shoes, Freight Train, Hound Dog, Maggie May, and Railroad Bill. The second session was Baby Let's Play House, Putting on the Style, Jailhouse Rock, Worried Man Blues, Campbell and Gap, Midnight Special, and they finished around 10.30 with the Dell Vikings' Come Go With Me. There's no record as to whether John sang the correct lyrics this time. However, at least two songs from this evening's session, Putting on the Style and Baby Let's Play House, were caught by St. Peter's Youth Club member Bob Molyneux on an amateur reel-to-reel tape. These rare recordings were later broadcast on the John Peel radio show. Let's give this historic recording a listen. This is how they sounded that day. Baby, 
is the only other part of that historic recording to have survived to this day. Playhouse, the Quarrymen, on stage on the 6th of July, 1957. Day's work may have been over, but the leader of the Quarrymen faced an important decision. Pete Shorten recalls that following the gig, John and I walked home alone, and John said to me, what do you think of him? Meaning Paul. I said, I like him. And he said, what about asking him to join the band then? So I said, well, if he wants to, it's okay with me. It's probably a good idea around this time to actually listen to John and Paul's version of their meeting. The following extract is from the Beatles anthology. Paul met me the first day I did Bebopalula live on stage and a, a mutual friend brought him to see my group called the Quarrymen. I had a mate at school who was called Ivan, Ivan Vaughan, and we were born on exactly the same day in Liverpool, so we, we were great mates. And uh, one day he said, do you want to come to the Wilton Village Fete? So I said, yeah, all right. So we went along one Saturday afternoon. I remember coming into uh, the field where they had the fete and just a bit over there, there was a wagon, uh, and on the back of this, or a little stage or something, on the, on, up on this stage, there was a few lads around, and there was one particular guy I noticed at the front, had a sort of checked shirt, sort of blondish kind of hair, a little bit curly, sideboards, looking pretty cool, and he was playing sort of one of these guitars, guaranteed not to crack, you know, not a very good one, but, um, but he was making a very good job of it, you know, and I remember being quite impressed and he was doing a song by the Dell Vikings called Come Go With Me. And the thing about it was, he obviously didn't know the words, but he was pulling in lyrics from blues songs. So instead of going, uh, come little darling, come and go with me, which is, the, is right, he'd then go, down, down, down to the penitentiary. And he'd be doing some of the stuff he'd heard on Big Bill Brunsey records and stuff. So I thought, that's clever. That's, that, he's, he's pretty good. That was John. And we met and we talked after the show, and I, I saw he had talent, and he was playing guitar backstage and doing 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran. But the thing I think impressed him most was, um, I knew all the words. I was the singer and the leader. I made the decision whether to have him in the group or not. Was it better to have a, a guy who was better than the people I had in, obviously, or not? And that decision was to let Paul in to make the group stronger. And I turned around to him right then on first meeting and said, do you want to join the group? And I think he said yes the next day. John's version of events is slightly at odds with the other accounts from both Pete Shotton and Paul McCartney. For although the St. Peter's fate marked Pete Shotton's last appearance with the group, he still had one vital role to play in the future of the Quarrymen. Around the 20th of July, Paul McCartney had cycled over to see Ivan Vaughan, but he wasn't at home. Pete Shotton had left his house en route to see John, when he saw Paul turning the corner of Linkster Road and Vale Road. Pete called to Paul and told him, quote, John and I have been talking it over and we both agreed that we'd like to ask you if you wanted to join the group. Paul thought for a few moments and then with a sudden, OK then, see you, he cycled off. So with a simple OK then, the foundation for the greatest songwriting team in popular music was laid. In our next episode, the Quarrymen make their debut at the Cavern. John starts at Liverpool Art College and the group's newest member, Paul McCartney, starts to make his influence felt. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, John Lennon, Blue Suede Shoes, The Quarrymen, a recreation from the movie Nowhere Boy, Maggie May, The Quarrymen from the Beatles anthology, That'll Be the Day, Paul McCartney, 20 Flight Rock from the Parkinson interview, Eddie Cochran, 20 Flight Rock from The Girl Can't Help It, and The Quarrymen, Putting on the Style and Baby Let's Play House, recorded on the 6th of July, 1957. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel. And if you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles or email me at alan at beforetheywerebeatles.com. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. The Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrid Entertainment, a division of 4J's Group, LLC.